This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the podcast is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, the next Dean of the G7. Oh dear. Is he ready to tackle China on the international stage? Jonathan Berkshire Miller, director of the Indo-Pacific Program at McDonald Laurier Institute, weighs in on all of this and helps us understand the G7 in general, which I personally found helpful here on the shift. Andy Andy Barrar is back with gift ideas for Father's Day and a look at how he lost 20 pounds by skipping rope. In fact, he lost so much weight, he had to put weight back on. He became so fit. And are you okay with burgers? and newspapers. It's all here on the Shift Daily Podcast. Are you okay? Are you okay with newspapers? I kind of miss them, to be honest. I mean... I love reading a newspaper. They're not really... I don't know. I mean, I haven't really had a physical newspaper in my hand in, I think, several years now. But I really yeah. missed that. I used to, uh, Saturday morning, I used to, we used to get the Toronto Star. I used to uh, look at the comics. Uh, Toronto Star had all these extra sections, like the autos that I used to like to look at. For some reason, I was really into yeah, cars as a kid, but I'm not now. Um, sports <laughs> and all kinds of stuff. But yeah, hmm. I miss I miss the physical newspaper. I do. I totally do. Although I do get the, uh, the uh, Airdrie paper gets delivered whether you want it or not because it's filled with flyers. And it would be nice to sit down and have the time to read it all the time, but it often ends, it gets soaked in the rain or something, ends up right in the recycle right. bin. So, you know, I mean, there is, uh, there's some real awesomeness to reading a paper, but, you know, when you look at the paper part, you're kind of like, today's world, to be throwing those for, you know, for free on everyone's patio and most of them aren't getting read, I don't know, maybe the pendulum has swung on the old newspaper. The reporting and the work that most newspapers do is incredible. Uh, it's a little bit out of my time or, you know, past or before my time when I grew up, like my dad would still read it, but I, I would watch the news, right? But the smell, I love the smell of newspapers. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like that paper smell is just like was comforting, seriously. And like yeah. Saturday morning, dad reading the paper and breakfast, like, yeah, 100%. That was a part of the experience. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's an interesting notion to sort of look at it. There are so many, and you're right, the investigative reporting that was done in newspapers was incredible. But I know TV people, they used to, when TV and radio used, or excuse me, when TV and newspapers used to compete, they used to call it the history pages, right? Because the news just happened on TV and the newspaper always happened yesterday. So, well, they've been a, incredi- a critical part for so long. I mean, what a history of writing and journalism. They're responsible for amazing uh, reporting. We often still use the newspapers today here on the shift for some of our stories. Our prime minister wanted to take a jab at newspapers, it seemed, at the G7 last weekend. During a press conference, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was asked by British Press how the G7 will be remembered. How will this G7 be remembered? Think about that. This whole thing, our prime minister, this is what they will remember. This is his answer. The impacts of this G7 will be felt long after the newspapers you write for will have been used to wrap fish. Okay. Uh, 
Maybe I won't do the newspapers and fish thing. I might get in trouble for that because we respect the freedom of the press and the independence and the work uh, that you all do in a very important way. Huh. Mm. Yeah, sure, hmm. sure. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it was just that Trudeau, if what, Trudeau never really takes like a really like jabby tone, but there was like this split second in that clip where it was like he was talking in a way he's like, I'm coming for you. I don't think he meant it that way, but that's how oh, it came I do. across. I, I think he absolutely jarring. did. I think you're right. I just think that I disagree. I think he was absolutely meant it that way. I think he was so proud and so smug in that comment that that you guys write for a paper that's going to be forgotten in a day the work we're doing today is going to last for generations and i really think that that was just his ego shining through can you play the clip one more time just for context so everyone can hear it brendan the impacts of this g7 will be felt long after the newspapers you write for will have been used to wrap fish Okay. Uh, maybe I won't do the newspapers and fish thing. I might get in trouble for that because we respect the freedom of the press and the independence and the work uh, that you all do in a very important way. And then the actor comes up. Yeah. No. I think that's the best example we've heard in a long time hmm. of all of that. I, I agree with you, Ryan, but I just think that it's, uh, I think he absolutely meant it. And then he realized as it came out, oh, oops. Inside voice. <laughs> Inside voice. Yeah. Not cool, man. Not cool at all. Um, and you can hear him back it up like it's some sort of joke insulting it. I don't know, man. I think that was that was offside. Offside. We need a whistle. Um, are you okay? Are you okay with flight attendants? Yeah, when I need some peanuts for my flight there, uh, you know, across the country. And I'm like, you know, we're, we're about uh, Winnipeg uh, and I'm going to Toronto and I look down. And I'm like, oh, I'll hit the little button. Mm-hmm. And I like when they got a little conversation. It's fun. Yeah, I like flight yeah. attendants. Yeah. They're, they're I like great. Whiskey. My aunts, they, we, exactly. They bring you alcohol on flights, which helps. I don't drink on flights anymore, though, because it makes me have to go to the bathroom every 30 seconds. But I'll see. Dep- yeah. Yeah, that's I, I have transitioned from sitting on the window seat to the aisle seat as I've gotten older. I've yeah. Found. You want to know a secret? Uh, Can I give you a real secret? Of Sorry, course. you finish your thought, then I'll give you the no, secret. No, I was just going to say, my aunt's thought. been a flight attendant with Air Canada for like over 25 years. Wow. So it's just always been a conversation and sharing stories. In fact, one time, this is a cool story. She was on a flight and Terry Crews was in first class. And she was, it was like a 20, it was a really long flight. So she had her break. And in that case, the flight attendants can sit in first class and take a nap. And the only seat next was, <laughs> was Terry Cruz. And so she sits down and goes, hi, Mr. Cruz. I, I'm just here to take a nap. You know, if you need anything, you need to move. Apparently he's super nice. And then he fell asleep. And my aunt accidentally like moved her arm and bumped into his shoulder. And she told me it felt like she had touched a rock. Like it was, you mean it like was the fitness heat. guy, right? Like yeah, the actor, he's, like fitness yeah, he's like guy, jacked. He's Brooklyn like, uh, Nine Nine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So wow. lots of cool stories. And she met one of my favorite metal bands called Cattle Decapitation on a flight one time. Apparently, they're very nice. Uh, I did have a friend of mine sit next to Sam Hunt. His mom sat next to Sam Hunt and and said, "Oh, you make music. My son makes music." And they had this wonderful chat, and she said, will you write your name down for me? Because I'm going to forget, and I want to tell Kyle. 
And then the, uh, and so she calls her son and says, yeah, I sat next to this really nice man. He said he makes country music. Have you heard of him? His name is, his name is Sam Hunt. And he was like, he's like the biggest country. This is a couple summers ago. He's like the biggest country star right now in the whole wide world. I had a flight attendant who was absolutely sure I was Billy Corgan on a WestJet flight back in 2013. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I had to finally be like, why would Billy Corgan be flying coach like back of this WestJet flight yeah. from Toronto to Vancouver? But The, se- the secret, by the way, Ryan, for your bathroom woes is that at the front Hit of the me. plane, if you sit in the premium or the business class, there's they usually get their own bathroom. Yeah, I know that. Right, but so I, then I don't you also get class. all the whiskey that you can handle. I know. So you can solve all your problems if you just fly first class. I'll sell a couple of sneakers, and then I can sit first class on my flight to Vancouver in no, a few you, months. There you go. You just got to set the goal, man. You, If you're like, I want to drink, but I got to pee too much and everything else, your solution is sit closer to the bathroom in the big comfy seats that cost five times as much. But, hey, you get a free Kit Kat. And, but all the whiskey you can handle... Like, there was one guy I flew back from Ottawa with, man. He probably had a dozen. I think he was just nervous. Ugh. Like, he was just a wreck. He was a nice guy, but he was wrecked. And then they ran out of they ran out of red wine, so he started moving to Coors Light, and then he got off the Coors Light, and he was going to the whiskey. Oh, man, it was amazing. Anyway, uh, a little off topic. So are you okay with flight attendants? Uh, just don't call them stewardesses anymore. That one's uh, long gone. There was yet another incident on an airplane last week involving a very unruly and grumpy passenger on Saturday. Delta Airlines was able to identify the passenger as a, wait for it, off-duty flight attendant. Oh, oh. oh rough. <laughs> Here's more from NBC News. The skies weren't so friendly on Delta Flight 1730 Friday night. The pilot turning to passengers for help during the cross-country trip from Los Angeles to Atlanta. We'd like all strong males to the front of the aircraft to handle the problem passenger. Moments earlier, the unruly passenger, an off-duty Delta flight attendant, yelling and struggling with others mid-flight next to the cabin door. Everyone was completely shaken up. They were screaming. People thought, like, they, when they said the oxygen mask, people thought our plane was, like, going down. It was extremely scary. Delta Airlines stating the flight diverted to Oklahoma City. The aircraft landed without incident and the passenger was removed by law enforcement. The incident comes as the TSA set a new pandemic record, clearing more than 2 million passengers on Friday. We now know that this latest incident began when the off-duty Delta employee uh, reportedly tried grabbing the plane's PA system, and that began the altercation. Also, this is the third incident on a Delta flight departing LAX in the last 10 days. (laughs) Do you remember the flight attendant who quit his job and he popped open the door and slid down the slide? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That is... uh... He went rogue there. Yeah. Like he he turned coat. I just oh. don't understand if you've worked that job, and you know how difficult it's it's it is working that job. Why would you want to be the antithesis of everything you do? That's like working retail all your life and then leaving retail and immediately becoming the most awful customer. Mm-hmm. It's just a betrayal, man. Not cool. <laughs> betrayal. It's definitely not cool. Uh, the flight went to Atlanta, and the passenger was removed. Okay, uh, one last one. Uh, all right, we're doing uh, the burgers. 
So before we get started here, let's get this clip. Welcome to Dippus. Can I take your order? Give me a uh, double bacon cheeseburger. Double bacon cheeseburger. It's for a cop. Roger. What the hell's that all about? You gonna spin it now? No, I was just telling him that so he makes it good. Don't spit in that cop's burger. Yeah, thanks. Roger, holding the spit. Give me a uh, pie, apple. Do you want me to hold the spit? <laughs> just kidding, officer. Farva. So, um, do you want to dip a size your meal for a quarter more? Want me to punch a size your face for free? <laughs> All right, Ryan, you have to let everyone in on what it was. Oh, Reno 911, baby. That's funny. Or no, that's sorry. No, that's not Reno. That's Super Troopers. My bad. Oh, is it? Oh, Super see, Troopers. there you go. I would have got it wrong anyway. Kind of thing there. Yeah. All right. So, are you okay? Are you okay with ordering a burger? Like the calm before the pleasant storm. Yes. Bring me more burgers. That's exciting, though. Beyond Meat Burger. I haven't gotten back to the beef yet, and I don't know if I will. So I like the Beyond Meat ones, though. They're pretty good. I don't know if it was a chain or not, but um, Fuddruckers was up in Edmonton, and you could always go there. And, man, you would order your burger by size and weight and how you wanted it cooked. And it was hands down. They used to have, like, this nacho cheese. You get this big bun and your burger as you ordered it. It was, it was, a, yeah, they didn't, weren't around forever, but in Edmonton, I'm pretty sure they were around for quite a while. That was a great way to go. A group of, um, and you got to say the name carefully, just so you know. A group of police officers in Pakistan got a little power hungry when they uh, went out to a burger joint, and the burger joint refused to hand over free burgers, detaining all 19 staff at the branch. <laughs> According to the Street Times, workers at the chain called Johnny and Jugnew in the eastern city of uh, Lahore, were rounded up and held for seven hours overnight on Saturday. It happened during business hours, so the place was left vacant, with customers just sitting there waiting for a burger. This is not the first time that something like this happened in our kitchen teams at our restaurant, but we want to make sure that this is the last, said the fast food chain in a statement. There was a huge outcry online. According to officials, nine police officers involved were suspended for arresting the burger place staff. For a lack of free burgers. Yeah, wow, uh, that is uh, obviously there's like an undertone of crazy, you know, abuse of power there, but uh, like that's not the way to go. Hey, we're cops. Give us free food. No, you're going to jail. Like really, that's that's the way you're gonna play that. If uh, if that happened burgers. in Canada, right, it would have been like. Every Tim Hortons would be closed for not giving out free Timbits and coffee to cops. So you can see the contrast. <laughs> exactly. This is the Shift Podcast. Well, this past weekend, all the leaders of the G7 hung out together for the first time. And I guess it was kind of strange to see. In fact, they all looked very happy to see other humans. Let's be honest, call it for what it is. So I thought we would get some insight on all of this. I have some questions. I have some sort of international questions. And there was an awful lot of conversation around China. So let's bring in our guest, Jonathan Berkshire Miller. Berkshire Miller. I'm going to say that again. Jonathan Berkshire Miller, to get your name right. He's director, Indo-Pacific Program, McDonnell-Laurie Institute. Um, The G7 in general, Jonathan, they uh, seemed pretty keen on other humans they looked actually excited 
Yeah, I think it was the first chance for a lot of these leaders to get a chance to interact with each other. Uh, you have a few uh, new leaders here who haven't had uh, their chance to kind of christen themselves at these international summits. So obviously, uh, Joe Biden being one of the key ones from the United States, uh, but also uh, Japanese Prime Minister uh, Suga Yoshihide. So there is, yeah, this is a chance. I think uh, everyone's been through a, a tough uh, year and a half. And I think, uh, you know, even the political leaders uh, so this is a chance for them to kind of have their uh, bilateral meetings and to, to start talking about, number one, how uh, how the democracies of the world start to move on and recover from this pandemic, but also the host of different challenges that have been happening uh, um, in the midst of this. So I think, I mean, one of the big takeaways I find here is that uh, while we've all understandably been so focused on, on combating COVID-19 and the pandemic, uh, this has not stopped. Uh, a range of different threats and challenges around the world, and in many senses, actually accelerated them. Uh, so that I think it was uh, on display at the G7 as well. Now, your focus is the Pacific end of the relations, as I understand it. I don't really understand what you do. So, um, I would imagine with that, though, because when you have Japan and Canada and the U.S. and all of those, you know, biggies, if you will, on the left side of the globe, if we're looking from the top. The um, you probably get pretty well informed about G seven in general. I would imagine. Yeah, so I think I mean the whole idea of framing things, whether it's a previously in an Asia Pacific or a Pacific nations now Indo Pacific. I would agree with you. I think um, Canada, the United States, and Japan obviously are first and foremost. But I think what a lot of states are realizing, Shane, is that, and this is true with our European friends too, is that the stakes in this region, especially obviously with the growth. China, um, you know, some of the positive elements of that economically, but all, obviously some of the, the negative and, and challenging things about that uh, in security terms and also some of the baggage we're seeing with those economic ties uh, means that the Europeans are in this boat too. Uh, today, the way that trade agreements work today, the way that security issues are today, it means that the Europeans can no longer, you know, be you know, sipping a coffee in Paris or, you know, enjoying a beer in, in Germany and, and just not tuning into these issues. So I think what we've seen is a lot of our um, European friends now are also developing their own strategies for this Indo-Pacific region uh, to ensure that we're all on the same page. Uh, the world is getting smaller every day, it seems. And um, if nothing else, what you just said described it well, and the pandemic is a great reminder of that. I think that's fair. Um, so now the G7 in general, when you look at this, there's all kinds of leaders that could come out of it. I mean, there was this piece, and I don't know if you have a comment on it. I'm just going to bring it up. If you have no comment on it, that's cool too, was about Angela Merkel leaving. And Justin Trudeau has been quoted on different articles all over the place as sort of positioning himself as the dean, the new leader, because he does have the longest uh, lineage at the G7 now of all the leaders. So wh where does that land in general for all of the countries involved? And is it even really a thing in your mind? Or does that, you know, is there someone else? How does that work? Yeah, I mean, in my mind, it seems a bit of a, a, a bit rich and a bit of a self-appointed title in many ways. I mean, uh, sometimes uh, tenure and uh, 
in the amount of time you spend in your position sometimes uh, grants you that sort of, uh, of a title. But the reality is, I think, you know, unfortunately, on some issues, Canada has led on, but internationally, I think Canada has, is far away, uh, especially even in the G construct, G7 construct, from fr- framing itself as, as the senior member or the dean or the, you know, the upholder of the rules-based order. Um, again, I think there are some areas that Canada has been effective on this, but in many ways, I think we've taken a backseat and effectively uh, allowed our other G7 partners to take the lead on. And I think one issue in particular on this has been, um, meeting the challenge of China. I think we're starting to wake up to this, obviously, now because of the, the difficulties we're having in our relationship uh, with the G. Michaels, obviously, that remain detained in China and other challenges we've had in that relationship. Uh, but the reality is we haven't been forward-leaning on that. Um, you know, we haven't been the steward of, uh, of the international community. We haven't really been the steward of our own domestic policy on this. Um, so I think that, um, you know, as I said, where, um, you know, Trudeau has been uh, through too many G7 summits and, and many more than especially the, you know, the, the big guys in the club, which, uh, which you know, you, you think of uh, as the United States and Japan and the UK. Um, but that doesn't necessarily always compute uh, to, uh, to a sense of uh, seasoned leadership. Well, and that's perfect uh, example of the one thing that everybody has seemed to agree on from reports is that what China has been doing, misbehaving, toss that about however you like, um, is definitely under everybody's microscope to make sure that it's dealt with globally. Now, I don't know how they do it, but they seem to agree on that. Um, what's your takeaway with you know your lens on the Pacific in particular of everything going on? Because there's a, a there's a long list of headline topics: flyovers, boats, man-made islands, uh, economy. There's all kinds of even things around COVID. There's uh, technology, two Michaels, geopolitics. Like there's a long list of things here. You feel free to take it wherever you want. Yeah, I think what a lot of partners, and I mean, this would be obviously true in the G7 context, but I think even if you go a bit further out and some of our other friends in Europe and elsewhere in Asia um, have, have noticed this in recent years, is that the challenges that we face with, with China and China's rise are not unique to us. So I think there's there's a sense from some, and you'll hear some narratives uh, spun here in Canada that you know, effectively, the, you know, the recent challenge between the United States and China, and, and effectively, this is something that we've just sort of found ourselves in, in, a, in a muddy trap. But I think the reality is actually, you know, we, we're facing some of these coercive um, threats um, and coercive diplomacy, hostage diplomacy, very similar to many of our other friends. Uh, um, the Australians have the same thing. Uh, I think there's at least a dozen uh, Japanese uh, citizens who are detained in China on similar issues. Uh, we've seen the sort of the employment of uh, economic tactics, whether it's uh, the banning of Australian wine, similar to Canada had that example with soybeans. So I think many countries are realizing that this is the case. And they're starting to say things in these statements that in previous years, and frankly, even last year or two or three years ago, uh, the, the group would not agree to say. Uh, so a specific reference, for example, to, um, you know, a calm situation in the Taiwan Straits, um, you know, uh, specific references to some of the challenges in the South China Sea, as you referenced, and the East China Sea, which is another dispute uh, China has there uh, with Japan. So I think you're seeing a, 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 you know, a coordinated and a more robust sort of pushback to some of the more coercive elements of China's rise uh, through all parties. All right. So there's a lot to unfold with all of that. And uh, I feel like we could chat about this for uh, a very long time, Jonathan, and not even really scratch the surface of of 
of all the pieces going on. Another thing that comes out of the G7 summit this this week is the the conversation that Canada or Justin Trudeau was going to lead the China angle anyway. Now, for me, as an uneducated Canadian in this, I find now understanding that I don't know the backdoor conversations around the two Michaels, you know, canola, pork, on and on and on. Uh, Huawei, I don't know what's going on behind closed doors, but to me, it seems like our prime minister is not the guy that you would want to lead the China conversation. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think there's two things that we need to think about in this respect. Um, and number one, uh, the challenges that we have with China, as much as we all want to see um, the Michaels return um, and want to see a you know a more stable relationship with China, um, we have, and I think we failed to see this uh, over the past uh, 10, 15 years in our relationship with China, is see some of the structural challenges that are at place. Um, and again, this is something that, as I mentioned before, is shared not only with Canada, but with every other country in the world, frankly, and a lot of our democratic allies, um, is that we've sort of tended to sort of put the wool over our eyes and say, well, you know, maybe these aren't real challenges. Maybe we can manage them and maybe we can still have great trade relations with China. Um, so I think, number one, that's that's one reason why I think that if we're going to lead a discussion internationally with our closest allies and, and friends on China, it has to be a more expansive and more strategic discussion than sort of talking about how important it is to not detain other citizens because we have two citizens detained in China. Um, you know, not to say that very cynically, but I think that we need to have that longer term lens. Um, and the second element that leads into it is we don't have that. Uh, you know, the opposition parties have been have been discussing the need and uh, and actually even putting motions in Parliament to have a China policy framework, a China strategy. Uh, there's also been pressure to have an Indo-Pacific strategy, which would encompass uh, some of the challenges of China, um, but neither is out there in the public yet. So there's a deep need for us to get our own hosts in order before we start going to uh, international summits and sort of leading the uh, discussion on it. Well, your background is also includes insecurity and in those relationships. You know, are is Canada safe in the way that we're dealing with this? You know, there's there's the whole Huawei conversation. There's everything that you can add into that. You know, are are we protecting Canada right now? Well, I think that if we are protecting Canada, we need to think about this very clear-eyed and a very realistic assessment. So, I mean, the reality here being that, of course, uh, it's not going to be black and white. There will be occasions and times where it makes sense to engage with China, and we should seize those opportunities. But the problem, I think, for the last 15, 20 years is that we haven't done that in a realistic uh, standpoint. We've essentially looked at the attractive things, almost like a, you know, a kid going into a candy store and, and, and looking at some of the chocolate bars and saying, I want those, I, you know, I want those free trade agreements, I want that investment, but not looking at some of the more incendiary uh, challenges that we will face with China. So I think that's the, you know, there are ways, we're not the United States, we're not even uh, Japan when it comes to economic heft or even security heft, uh, but there are ways we can protect ourselves. Um, and I think that can be done both nationally, but also in tandem with some of our friends. Uh, but the first step has to be recognition. We need to recognize the challenges um, and just see that realistically. And from that point on, then we then we can make the strategy. If we don't recognize what situation we're in um, and we don't recognize uh, some of the adversarial ways of China, uh, then it's going to be very difficult to make a strategy. Yeah, you got to know who you're fighting, I suppose, if you will. If you're going to get into an argument, you got to realize what you're debating about and who you're debating with um, in order to actually uh, dance in the debate, if you will. 
that's an interesting perspective to sort of look at it that way. But we also have Canada taking now a stance on the Uyghurs, at least publicly making a statement about it. And then, um, you know, there's the Hong Kong conversation and then there's Taiwan is another one that's on there too. So how, you know, how, how could it be navigated even if uh, Trudeau was the guy, uh, hypothetically, <laughs> work with me here, that Trudeau's the guy and he's going to pull it off. How do you pull off something of this magnitude when you've got, you know, a country like China that's coloring so far out the lines right now of, of the global agreements that, you know, how do you put it back together again? I feel like it's a little bit like Humpty Dumpty. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, and I would agree with you. There is no simple fix. Um, what I would say would be important, though, is for Canada not to overly think of China as a, as a monolith and build it up to be a, to almost a dragon levels. Uh, they need to think about it more in the regional context. And I think this has been one of the challenges is that, you know, even over the past, especially uh, under um, the Trudeau administration, if you remember back when when he was first elected, um, most of his ministers, he had the open government um, format and they had the open mandate letters and across many of the different ministries, uh, of course, foreign affairs, but others, it was essentially China, China, China. It was, um, you know, we want to engage with China. We see the opportunities with China. Um, and so I think it's been hard for him to sort of you know, walk back a bit from that. The challenge, as I said, is looking at China in a fishbowl is that there's more to this region. So um, rather than thinking about, oh, how can we, you know, either work with U.S. to kind of work on some of these issues with China or have quiet diplomacy with China itself, why aren't we working with everyone else in this region? Uh, Why aren't there more discussions with the Japanese? Why aren't there, you know, deeper relations with the Australians, the South Koreans, um, some of our friends, even in Southeast Asia, um, these are the questions, the tough questions that I think we we need to be answering. And I think that sort of is a driver why, why I'm doing so much of my work, uh, Shane, on the Indo-Pacific and the need for an Indo-Pacific strategy is that we need a strategy for everyone else. We need to stop putting all the attention on, on China itself and start looking at everyone else in this big uh, part of the world. One thing just occurred to me, and I feel very uneducated in this thought that um, from what you just said is that, you know, putting the spotlight on everyone else. And for me, it's funny because the thing that I land on, I guess is just as a Canadian is maybe we just need to stop putting the spotlight on ourselves. Cause I feel like that's kind of what's been going on. Right. Is that, you know, the politicking or the political theater seems to be more appealing than actual resolve. And that's the part that really gets me. That's a really good point. And I think it's actually uh, core to some of the message that I will say, whether it's publicly or even to privately to some policymakers, is that when thinking in particular about this region, but I think it's true with any foreign partner, is I think we need to think about two things. Number one, obviously, we need to think about should we be doing things that are in the interests of Canada and Canadians? That, of course, is the the job of any sort of Canadian politician, especially prime minister. Um, But the second thought needs to be, and it's, it's combined with this, is are, are the things that we're doing, are the things that we're trying to do with partners and regions, are they in the interests of those regions? So I think that goes to your sort of comment, because I think often we sort of go around, fly around at these places and sort of do things that Team Canada or potentially Team Trudeau uh, wants to do. But I think they have very little empathy of the situations on the ground. Um, we need to understand some of the context in some of these situations, uh, you know, whether they're security challenges, whether they're economic challenges, and sort of build that into our foreign policy. So basically, it needs to be a bit of both. It needs to be about what do I want and what, is my, what do my friends or allies need? 
and 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 mold that into a policy. But I think we've done a, a kind of poor job at that, especially in this region of the world, and focus much more on the priorities of the administration of the day. Yeah, well, and I just had a flashback in my mind as you said that about his trip to India when, with the the clothing and the attire, and the when he first started, right? I mean that that might be a really great example of, of maybe being a little bit of read the room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, precisely. Oh, man, I really appreciate this conversation and the insight, Jonathan Berkshire Miller. Um, you know the, I think the understanding is remarkable for me. It teaches me an awful lot about this. And I think it also shows that, you know, some of the stories we get from Canadians and text messages here on The Shift, you know, I think Canadians are seeing in a big way that, you know, I, I'm I'm not drawing any political lines on this about him being good or bad at the job. But the reality is, is that I think that Canadians are accurate when they say they want more and they want it to be efficient and start to see some results. Because that, to me, um, is a common thread. And I would say that sounds pretty accurate to me. Yeah, no, I agree, Shane. It's always it's a real pleasure to have been on, and uh, and and I would agree with you. I think that Canadians understand. I mean, they they're they're well informed on these issues, and they understand that we are a Pacific nation. Um, and uh, while we have a long history with our transatlantic friends and uh, the Europeans, um, I think there's a greater greater thirst and um, and frankly responsibility on the government to start driving that forward in a in a responsible way. So I uh, I fully agree uh, with you, and it's uh, it's been real fun to be on. It's the Shift Podcast. It's time for us to check in with uh, Handy Andy Barrar. Disco Andy, as they like to call him. And uh, the reason why is because he went to Vegas once with a bunch of other people that I know. And those stories will live on in infamy. 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 What can I say? It's one of those things. Andy Barrar, how are you? I'm good, Shane. How are you? Oh, please keep going. Was that Daddy Cool? Daddy Cool by Boney M. Nice. I love it. She's crazy like fool. Daddy Cool? That's totally an Andy Barrar song right there. The Daddy Cool. Uh, I, you know, I totally missed out on the whole disco era. You know, I, I that would have been some good times. You know, go to Studio 54 and... Yeah. Well, I mean, you still can't, well, you can't go to Studio 54, but you can still make it all happen. I mean, handyandymedia.com, if you go to the website, you can see uh, Disco Andy Skippy there. Uh, maybe you need to do some disco skipping. How about that? I, I do. I do skip to disco music, yes. Chic all the time. You know, Nile Rogers, that's my guy, man. He's got the chops. So I, I match those chops with my feet. It's kind of a good trick. So uh, we started a year ago in this conversation around skipping. Andy, uh, in his uh, infinite wisdom, so you got it right that time, was looking at this whole COVID pandemic thing, thinking, what am I going to do? What can I do that's something different? And Andy went and picked up some videos on YouTube and learned how to skip. Now, how much weight have you lost total in this? Uh, at, well, at the, the most at the time, it was about 20 pounds. Yeah. So, and I'm like a middleweight, so that, that was quite a bit. Uh, my body that's fat, fair. I was around 22%. And I got down to twelve. Wow! And now I'm going back up because that was just—I was just way too thin. Like, really? It, pe- people like think that you can't ever be too thin, but you can. Like my face—I look like Skeletor. <laughs> I, had to, I had to eat a cheeseburger. You—you <laughs> uh, you did fit into your grad dress, so you were excited about that. That was particularly exciting because um, you yes, made a comment I, about. I got—I got down to like sixteen. Uh, the, the weight I was was when I was like sixteen or seventeen. So that was really weird to be back huh. at that at that weight. 
Well, I admire what you've done. Because of a jump done. rope. A jump it rope is. chain. It is. And it's, I admire what you've done. And you posted a side-by-side about your skipping jump rope and um, and how far you've come. And I've, a year ago, I saw you doing the jump rope, and I was like, this guy's good. And then a year later, I see you on side-by-side jump rope of today versus a year ago. And you know what? That guy a year ago was dreadful. This guy I today know. is like... He's like styling. The guy a year so, ago, it looks it looks like you're counting. It's like you're going one, two, three, four, kick, two. Like it's very funny. And then today it's like you look like you're Rocky Balboa there. I, I know. Um, for any of the listeners that want to see this video, just go to my website, handyandymedia.com. And I click on the blogs. You'll see it. It's the first blog article. And so what I did is I was in the exact same spot one year later uh, with the jump rope. And that was actually the, the first video, Shane, was the first time I ever filmed myself uh, with the jump rope. I was trying to learn this move called the side swing. And it's when it's exactly what it sounds like. It's when you swing the rope to the sides, but you're not jumping over it. And uh, it looks like I have nunchucks or something on the first time. Like, I don't know yeah. what I'm doing. And then in the second video, you could see one year later of just daily practice, watching videos online, you know, videotaping myself, watching those videos, just like professional athletes do. They always watch tape of themselves and just making those incremental improvements, Shane, um, you know, day after day, month after month, slowly the technique was starting to come. And when I made that video and that side-by-side -side comparison in the exact same spot one year later, what a transformation. It, I actually couldn't start laughing because of how bad I was. I was like you. I thought I was pretty good back then. And um, it just shows how far you can go. You know, it, it really is. Practice makes perfect. You know, I, I'm starting to learn the wisdom about practice all over again. Yeah. And, it, and not only that, I would like to say that for anybody else who does try it, um, I think that, I mean, I haven't done it. And I, I am completely out of my integrity in that because I did get a, a jumping rope and I haven't done it yet. I haven't had the nerve, frankly, to go on my front lawn and do it. I don't have a backyard. I have a lane. So um, I just want to throw it out there like... Don't let us teasing Andy about doing it discourage anybody from doing it. I hope that uh, in, in the teasing about this uh, that you can see the fun it's been, and it's really kind of cool um, how far you've come. And, yeah, go. I guess my invitation to anybody who hasn't done something like this is just go be dreadful and enjoy it because yes. you're going to get to a point where you're going to think that was really fun. You know, you know what I did, Shane? And I'm going to do it again. It's funny that we're talking about this. I had the same thing. I was too shy about jumping in public. So mm -hmm. after that video that I made in my backyard, I was like, you know what? I, I'm, I'm not supposed to be shy, right? So I took my jump rope. I went downtown Vancouver at Science World with the backdrop of Vancouver. And I made a video of me jumping there. And so I was thinking, I'm going to go back to the exact same spot again and do it again this time that's cool and even you know just to like it was good to get that 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 fear of jumping in public now when i go to the gym i jump all the time and it's funny because no one else jumps rope there and everyone thinks i'm a boxer they're like oh you you box i'm like no i'm like i'm a lover not a fighter <laughs> oh god <laughs> <laughs> it's an old michael jackson saying in the song yeah. um the girl is mine with paul mccartney <laughs> there you go. and so, um, yeah, getting overcoming that because it's such a good thing to do with other people. And I can't wait till this pandemic is over when I can finally like have a community of other people that jump and have like, you know how like rappers have like their little rap battles. I want to have like a jump battle with people and and uh, just meet up with people that I've I've I've, I've connected with online.
Well, let's um, let's uh, take that cue there. Um, I don't know if buying your dad a jump rope is is really the the hint that he's going to want for Father's Day, but you did have some Father's Day gift ideas that I wanted to get to this one first, so we fit it all in uh, because that's what's coming up this weekend. So um, whether it's your um, your father or your father's father or uh, your sugar daddy, whatever this works for you, um, you know it is coming up this week. You had some ideas you wanted to share. Yeah, these are for like the DIY dads out there. First of all, this one you got to check out. I have a video on my website, handyandymedia.com. It's the WorkSharp Tool Sharpener. This is a tool and knife sharpener. So if your dad likes to work with like, you know, a nice sharp uh, a knife when they're cutting, uh, you know, with their chef knife, it'll cut that. It'll also sharpen your scissors. It'll sharpen axes. It'll sharpen like any kind of blade, essentially, even your pocket knife blades. You can sharpen it with this. It's called the WorkSharp Tool Sharpener. Go to my website, handyandymedia.com. That's what I use to sharpen all my kitchen tools. And you know what's funny, Shane? I would take these to like house parties and I'm like, give me all your knives. And I'd pull out my knife sharpener and I would sharpen. And everyone thought I was crazy. But when yeah. they saw the before and after and how good I can sharpen knives now, then they're impressed, but they think I'm a psycho when I come. Yeah, and I that's take a, out that's all a the fair ball, in though. In, in that case, that's um, we got to work on your social skills if that's your <laughs> approach um, uh, to the party. I did see it. It looks like a miniature belt sander, really, is what it looks like. Yeah. Yeah, um, and it's, it's and, pretty cool. And it, the cool thing is you can actually sharpen to different degrees, so 15 degrees, 20 degrees, or 25 degrees. Um, certain types of tools like to have a different type of, of uh, uh, edge to it. So you got to definitely check that out. The next thing, Shane, this is a good one that no one's probably ever heard of. It's the world's first moldable glue. It's called Sugru. So it's spelled S-U-G-R-U. And if you go on my website, you can see how it is. Essentially, it's like Play-Doh. I have some here. Here, I'll show it to you because we're on Zoom. It looks like Play-Doh. Oh, it does. And it's like what you can do... It's like, say something breaks, like uh, your dad's favorite coffee mug, the handle breaks off it. Well, you take this Play-Doh stuff and you put it on there, you stick it to the thing, and then in 24 hours, it hardens and it's stuck like glue. So you could use this to hang out pictures on the wall. Um, some people use these for the cables, their charging cables to make them a little bit more uh, strengthened at the edges yeah, so they don't like fray. Any, any Apple cable that frays all the time. cable falls apart piece of crap. Yeah, exactly. Actually, I used to use these with cables to to reinforce cables, but it's really cool. You could actually just like, just like Play-Doh, make a little hook and then, you know, stick it on the wall. The next morning you come and it's an actual hook and you can hang stuff on it. So it's really cool for dads because things will break around the house and you can be like, oh, I'm going to use that Sugru stuff. But the thing is, and I just learned this today, Shane, it expires because I needed to use it today and I opened it up and this expired in 2019. So it does have a shelf life. So if you get it for your dad, make sure he knows that he has it. Um, cool. Is that, uh, do you have anything else on the list or did you want to move on to the pin pads? Oh yeah. No, we got to talk about this pin pad. Cause I want to All save right. people from a lot of trouble that uh, I had. So you're seeing this popularity of smart locks, but you also have these these just electronic pin locks, so you don't need a key, an actual key. Yeah. So Airbnb I installed, does a lot, right? Yeah. So I installed yeah. one of these on my Airbnb suite, and I got a message from a guest, and she's like, "The pin code doesn't work." So I went and you know to help her out, and I'm entering the code, 
it recognizes the code, but the deadbolt wasn't opening. And it was freaking me out, Shane, because here I am, handy Andy, DIY guy, looking at this thing and I could not fix it. And then I realized that it was so reliable, that pin code, that I can't even find the key anymore. So now my stress level is going crazy. And I just kept working at it and I was just playing around with it, you know, doing like the old fawns. I hit it with the elbow and everything. (laughs) (laughs) And sure enough, it opened. And they looked at me, they're like, what'd you do? And I would just like, it, with a blank face, go like, I don't know. And it freaked me out so much that I went to Home Depot and bought the exact same one because they're checking out tomorrow and I got to figure out what is wrong with this like electronic lock. I think something's wrong inside the deadbolt and I'm going to call them and everything, but I have a backup just in case I have to um, replace it. So for anybody that has one of these electronic locks or even a smart lock, do what I'm about to do tomorrow. You can buy these little lock boxes and you got to put an emergency lock and keys somewhere just in the off chance that one of these locks fail. Because as soon as you bring electronics involved to any kind of product, you're going to have some type of fail. And I, I learned it yesterday or yesterday. And Shane, I'm not I'm never going to let that happen again. I was so mad that I lost that key, too. But I'm going to create a lock box just to have an emergency key in case I'm not home that the guests can still get inside uh, the door. Yeah, and hide that, the the like if you have a keypad lockbox, right, where you enter in a keypad, it's like, kind of like how realtors use, except they use an app to access it. But the uh, if he has the code on it where you enter it, put it somewhere safe. And one of the things that I learned in my time with the Airbnbs is don't put it somewhere where it's wide open, someone yes. can see it, and frankly can swing like a crowbar at it. It's got to be someplace tucked away that's put away because if someone can swing a crowbar at it, they will if they want to get in. Um, there was um, one apartment building uh, that I was uh, using that um, had like five or six of them smashed open in one day. And so that gave them five or six copies of the front door key and access into five or six apartments in the building. And the question was, is, you know, when were they going to come back and start trying locks? So hide it, put it away but have a backup. And by the way, yeah, hopefully you never know. Hopefully somebody will learn from my mistake cuz I'm I'm never going to let that happen again. That was really really uh, anxious moment yesterday. You well, know, you know never know with these electronic locks and stuff. Well, I've always wondered about that on the Fords, right? The Ford cars have the things and we used to walk up to my buddy's dad's car and we would just start punching in numbers and all of a sudden the trunk would open like you just get lucky, right? And yeah. um yeah, there's a certain point where just a key under a mat or underneath a pot potted plant is probably pretty welcome. Um, handyandymedia.com. Go to the website, check it out. The videos are there. Update us on this keypad thing because I want to know what you find out. I want to know what that company says. When you say, hey, by the way, I, w- I went, hey, and I hit it with my elbow and it opened. So what's going on? Yeah. So Yeah, I'll find out know. tomorrow. Okay, buddy. Thanks for popping in. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.